Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric V. Welcome to part two of Online Focus Groups. We're here with John Campbell. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. John, welcome back. Thank you so much. Looking forward to continuing to talk with you. So, John, you'd looked at how the jurors' attitudes that you've discussed impact liability. In other words, how answers to specific questions correlate to their decision on plaintiff versus defendant. Is that right? Yes. And what can you tell us about that? What, what did you find? Let me break it into two parts, John. So the first thing we found was that jurors who are not nervous about jury duty declined the case value by about 16%. So if you're a defense attorney, you would hear that and say, the people who most likely to show up who say they're not nervous at all on net, probably a little better for the defense. If you're a plaintiff's attorney, of course, you would hear that to say, maybe that's a little bit troubling about who's going to show up. Um, that's offset to some degree by the fact that some of those people who will show up then, even though they're not nervous to be there, will refuse to serve because they will not, they would not wear a mask. And I think in most courts I'm familiar with, the talk is if you're going to put people in a box and put them in a closed room, they're going to have to be in masks. So that's one thing we know. If we move past this sort of general cases, it might be useful to talk a little bit about medical malpractice cases, because I know that's a topic a lot of attorneys on both sides of the aisle are thinking about. So we ran two different medical malpractice cases that we had studied for lawyers in the past. That means between the two of them, we had about 750 jurors who had looked at those cases, rendered verdicts, rendered damages, allocated fault, responded to questions. And we knew with some precision what those cases, what the win rates were in those cases, what the average values were. In those cases, in medical malpractice cases, the common dialogue, at least that I've been hearing, is, well, medical malpractice cases are going to be much harder to win for the plaintiff because the plaintiff now has to sue a doctor and doctors are being clapped for or howled for or cheered for in some way at you know, a certain time of night and they're showing up in newspapers as heroes and, and they are doing very important work, doctors and nurses. I would tell you that in that setting, we studied the cases again to see, is that true? And the, the answer is a little mixed. The answer on liability is we don't see any evidence that medical malpractice liability rates are going down because of COVID. We, we see no evidence of that at all. In the two cases we studied, one fell by 5%, but it wasn't statistically significant, and the win rate was still over 90% for the plaintiff. And in the other, the win rate actually rose by a point. So across these cases, what we're seeing is that medical malpractice cases are not harder for the plaintiff or easier for the defense or vice versa. On damages, the question's a little more complicated. We see some evidence that damages are declining some, although... It's so different in the two cases that it's very hard to say how much or whether that would hold across all cases. So, John, just so I'm, I'm making sure I understand, you did this with two med mal cases that you had already focused before COVID, right? That's right. So, so very briefly, we had a case that was a, a doctor who told a woman she had cancer, performed a mastectomy. After that, the post-op biopsy showed no cancer. They went back and realized that they were wrong. She had never had cancer. The doctor, rather than saying, I'm very sorry to have performed this surgery, said, good news, we got it all. Okay, so it was a very strong medical malpractice case because not only did they make an error, they lied about the error. And we had a second case that was a birth trauma case about whether or not a vacuum birth was appropriate and whether or not it caused permanent traumatic brain injury. We had run those and studied those in detail for lawyers in the past, this 
this cancer misdiagnosis case and this birth trauma case. And what we did was we ran those exact same cases again, but we ran them in May so that we could see if COVID was impacting the results because the working assumption was if we see radical changes in liability or damages, maybe that's this COVID effect that everybody's been talking about. And so your overall conclusion, and, and this was how many people? About 750 uh, potential yeah, about, jurors altogether? Yep. That uh, there really is no, no difference. I've been hearing people say, well, there's going to have to be a discount on medical malpractice cases to settle them, for example. The plaintiff's going to have to take a discount. They're going to have to take less. Our data doesn't say that's true at all. Our data says that you're just as likely to win the case now as you were before COVID. Is there any question about COVID that you can directly relate to a win or loss rate in, in, a, in any case, med mal case or otherwise? Yes. So there's three that might. All right. So one is, would you be nervous about attending trial because of COVID? The people who say no, they're, they're not nervous at all, which is about, it's not about, it's 27% of the population. They are worse on liability and worse on damages. The damage effect is more pronounced. They would basically bring case value down on net about 16%. Those are the people they, who are cool with everything. They don't want a mask. They just yeah, are willing they, to come on in just and fine. listen. Yep. Okay. And, and I, I should say that a little more clearly. They, they also hurt on damages. So they're, they're just... They bring the on liability as well. So they bring liability and damages down. We also see an effect, although a little less pronounced, um, that people who have been affected by COVID or know someone who's become seriously ill are good for the plaintiff. That effect is even across, like I'm looking at one study right now on my screen, even across 500 jurors in that study, um, it wasn't quite statistically significant. But it's an effect that I think we've seen enough to believe is real and that we just need more people to confirm, which is that people who know someone who's become seriously ill or died from COVID tend to do better for the plaintiff. Those are two of the, the most clear predictors of sort of what they'll do if they just have a general COVID view. And those hold across cases beyond just medical malpractice cases. Did you ask any questions about how the juror felt about the government's response to COVID? We did. They were not highly predictive. Um, in fact, they weren't predictive. Um, what was, what is interesting, I'll just mention this for the people that are really sort of in the weeds on this, but I think it's useful, is what we are seeing is that some of our common understandings of political orientation are changing. And so it's at least related. So we asked people, would they vote for Trump now? And did they consider themselves openly a Trump supporter? Which I think is largely a proxy for what you just said, John. Do they, they sort of feel like the government response at the highest levels, are they still support it or not? And the interesting thing is, is that in the past, people who are open Trump supporters have typically been relatively bad in medical malpractice cases and relatively bad for the plaintiff in injury cases, relatively good for the defense. We're seeing that break down. And so in one of the medical malpractice cases that we studied, we saw Trump supporters return a higher win rate higher liability rate than non-Trump supporters in a medical malpractice case. I have never seen that. In years of doing this, I have never seen it. It's changing. So I think what we're seeing is, is that as Trump supporters perceive the medical profession, science, and to some degree doctors and nurses as keeping them in their house and making too big a deal of COVID, they're, they're, they're much less sympathetic for doctors and nurses than they used to be. And so the interesting thing is, is that means if you bring a claim against a doctor, now you might have a liberal juror who before always said, well, I, I'm sort of on the side of the victim. 
Um, now they're saying, well, I don't know. I think doctors are doing heroic work and nurses are doing important work and they're keeping us safe from a very dangerous virus. You have some Trump supporters saying this virus is overblown and the doctors and nurses are feeding this mantra that we should be in our houses and wearing masks. And so we're seeing predict the things that we've always used as predictors and that tend to be relatively reliable breaking down. So really, if a good defense attorney and a good plaintiff's attorney on a case, and they know everything about the evidence, and they know everything about the witnesses, and they know everything about the damages, and they know everything about the reports on damages, why doesn't the case settle? Well, it doesn't settle because we don't want to know what the judge will do with OSIs or motions in limine. We don't know how some witness will perform under pressure. We don't know what the jury will look like. And as we know more of those things, cases settle. So as we know who's on the jury, and we know whether the whistleblower's coming in, and we know what's going to happen with the rules of evidence, uh, there's less that we don't know, and two reasonable minds can resolve it. Well, what if I told you that you're going to have a case, and it's going to be tried to 75 jurors, and they're going to be from the community? You could present your case beforehand. You could study your case to 75 or 100 or 200 or 500 jurors, and the other side could do the same thing. And many times, you ought to be able to value it reasonably enough that it would resolve. Because a lot of times, I believe cases don't resolve because there's an information gap or perception gap between the parties. I think a lot of that's driven by the fact that the jury, we perceive the jury as random. And, you know, my sort of challenge would be is whether it's good to perceive juries as random or whether you know, we should you, perceive juries as predictable. As you say that, I'm thinking this makes what you're proposing a natural extension of discovery. You know, the, the reason for discovery is to get to know each other's case then you can settle it better or have a better chance to have a discussion without going to trial. This is a chance to get to know it all the better, which would seem like it would make it all the more likely that you could see it the same way and maybe evaluate it the same way. You know how every, every federal court now sends you to mediation and you go to a mediator and I don't know about you, but since they always, they tend to order it early. I, I don't think I've ever settled a case with the, the ordered mediation early, maybe late. What if instead federal court said, look, we have a trial coming up. And when we have the trial, we're going to seat 75 or 100 jurors, and they're going to vote, and we're going to have a rule of decision that if so many vote this way, the plaintiff wins, so many vote this way, the defense wins. What I would say is that mediation, have both sides write up their case, have the mediator present that case to 100 jurors who are called, use 100 people from that venue, and run the case in advance, and see what it does, and see who's wrong. If somebody says, oh, I'm sure to win, and then you run the case, and they're not even close to winning, then they should reevaluate their position. And we would have less cases. Now, for all of us who think it's fun to try cases, it might mean more of them settle. But I think it would also mean that on net, we have more results that are predictable, which I believe is good for the jury system as a whole. Because the problem we're facing as, as trial lawyers is, is that jury trials are going away. And part of that is because we get this messaging about how uh, jurors are not consistent. So, John, what you're telling us is the larger the jury pool, the larger the number of jurors, the more predictable the outcome is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can see that. Just like you were saying before, you could focus it to 1,000 jurors online, but then you're looking at six jurors in federal court. doesn't mean anything. It's if, really worrisome. I mean, yeah, John, I mean, I'm sure you've had that. I mean, you probably less than, less than most lawyers, but I mean, there's nothing worse than, than trying a case that you should win. I mean, I think objectively you should win. It's a good case. And then couple of jurors, because there's only six, and you need a unanimous verdict, and they're stubborn, either compromising what we see is they compromise the value of the case on the plaintiff's side. And so to, in order to buy their vote, the damages come down, or they actually turn the jury because people can only sit there so long. And I think 
if you're a seriously injured person or a, a person who has a serious claim, the idea that you could lose your case because two people shouldn't have been sitting there to start with. So I would say, you know, what are my choices? One, in the age of COVID, maybe we ought to rethink jury trials. Two, if we're going to do them the traditional way, I think it's unconstitutional not to allow attorney-led voir dire on both general issues of civil cases as well as specific case issues. And, you know, we're all Missouri lawyers. We're all licensed in Missouri. You guys practice in Missouri a lot, although you both have, you know, much broader practices too. We're sort of spoiled with the idea that a judge will give us a day to pick a jury. I now live in Colorado where the, the presumption is you get 20 minutes per side. Wow. And 20 minutes per side to pick through 40 jurors, you have 30 seconds per juror. So what you do is you sit down at a roulette wheel and hope to God that there's not enough people in the first six or nine seats that you'll never get to even have your case heard fairly. And I think we have to get past that. So a selfless plug, we have a, a paper that proves that this needs to be done, and if it isn't, you will seat juries that can't hear evidence. Uh, and that was published by the Civil Justice Research Institute. It studies 2,000 jurors. It also proves for all those attorneys who are sick of rehabilitation in which a judge says, all right, well, I know you just said that you hate plaintiff's lawyers or you hate defense lawyers or you hate all lawyers or you hate companies or you hate plaintiffs or whatever, but can you set that aside and be fair? It also shows that that intervention does nothing. And if it does anything at all, the only thing it does is make the jurors a little more blind to their own bias during deliberation. If anything, it makes them a little worse jurors, not better. My radical idea, maybe we should rethink how we try cases. My simple idea, we've got to allow meaningful selection in every case so that we can seat people who don't already have predisposed views that mean they won't hear the evidence that's so critical to these people who only have one case and whose lives will be changed by the result. John, the idea of a Netflix trial and proposing larger juries like that, this is all scary stuff to those of us who've done things the way we've done them for, for a long time. And I'm not I'm not convinced I know the answer yet, and I think this is going to require a lot of discussion by policymakers. But what's interesting to me is that I can't think of another profession where path dependence doesn't dictate what we do more than the legal profession. I mean, the whole idea of stare decisis, you know, we'd never pick an engineer who does something because they used to do it that way. So here we are with this revolutionary, scary thing. But what the problem is, is we're being smashed up against COVID and an increasingly uh, mounting trial load that's not moving. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if, if we can break the bottleneck in some way rather than not at all, or if the virus keeps, keeps us where we are, uh, this is going to be very interesting. With that in mind, this is like the longest prelude to a question. Have you had any feedback from any policymakers? Are they interested in these sorts of things? The short answer is no, but we're, we're too early. So what, you're, what you've seen and what we're talking about now, uh, we haven't put out to anybody as far as the, the sort of idea of different trials. And I think, you know, look, I, I, I understand the world we're living in. I mean, the most likely result is going to be socially distanced trials. I would say we just have to, if we go that route, all of us have to understand, one, it is the least desirable route among jurors. So they're not going to be thrilled to be there. And two, we are going to, by definition, be seating a group of people that is in some way skewed from the population. That's always been true. I think it'll be more dramatically true in these, these months after COVID. So what I would say is, let's at least think about piloting some options. And if we could use COVID not only to try new things, but maybe even improve. The other thing I would say is, can you think of any other field in which the way it's done is identical to the way it was done 200 years ago? 
I can't. And I understand we're in kind of a, we're not in a hard science field, we're lawyers. Uh, but maybe we should start challenging ourselves to think about how we can do it in a 21st century way that makes it even more likely that we get just results, which is all any of us want. I've never talked to a lawyer who says, I want a rigged jury. But what they want is they want fair results and they want to know that after years of work on a case and after their client has waited for years to come to trial, that the result they get is a fair one. If that means they lose, I think we can all live with that. What we can't live with is, is one side losing because the things that should have mattered didn't at all. A guy I've gotten to know named Lee Ross, he invented the attribution effect. He discovered and thought of and named the attribution effect. He says, you can't convince anyone of something. It's too expensive for them to believe. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's, yeah. that's going yeah, on a lot in, in jury selection. Yeah. That, you know, look, you just, if, if they cannot afford to believe it for their own personal situation because they'd have to tell their family they believe it, because it would embarrass them or whatever else, yeah, yeah. you're spinning your wheels. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. We don't make rational decisions. People make decisions with their, you know, we always say heart then mind. If, yeah. you, if you tell them something that they nod their head and agree with, the rest is easy. If you were picking somebody who was going to be the ref for a baseball game and it was between the Cardinals and the Cubs, what we know is, is that you'd ask everybody, how many of you are Cardinals fans and how many of you are Cubs fans? And everybody who raised their hand wouldn't be the ump, right? We wouldn't make them the ump. Because if you're a Cardinal or a Cub fan and you're supposed to call a Cardinals-Cubs game, we're not going to make you the ump. What we're going to look for is somebody, yeah, they love baseball, but they cheer for the Yankees because they don't care too much who, who wins between the Cardinals and the Cubs. I think in jury selection, that's our best goal, right, is that we need to get the people off who, for that case, for whatever reason, have life experience and views that are going to make it hard to listen. And there's enough jurors that we can get people that are just Yankees fans and don't care too much about this game in a personal way, so they'll listen. I think judges have to start thinking of jurors as more fungible. They call 30 people, and they need to seat 12 and two alternates, and so then they're so worried about losing them. Let's call 100 in, spend a little more time, and get a fair yeah, jury. Right. right. I mean, it, it, we got enough citizens for this, and we have mm -hmm. enough time. And what's at stake are people's lives, right? I mean, in criminal cases, people's freedom. And in civil cases, people's one chance at fairness. This is great. I had one other question. So, John, uh, I'm on the fence on, th on this one, but what do you think about using the results of the focus group in settlement discussions? John, that's becoming, I would say it's becoming the gold standard. We're getting asked all the time now to do the study. And the way you can really do it, since, since that often happens within a, since mediation, meaningful mediation happens within a couple months of, of trial, we try to kind of kill two birds with one stone. We do a full study, and it's, it's ready to go if you need to go try the case. But then what we're seeing happen is the attorneys are saying to us, our, you know, these are people that we work with a lot of friends. They say, hey, give me a mediation version of this report. And often the defense case that was presented, because I want to go to the mediator and says, look, I gave you your best day. This defense is as aggressive as you can write it. And I put anything that's controversial that you might not get in on a motion in limine, I put it in. And then I valued the case. And here's the average value of the case. And if you want to pay me what the case is worth, I'll settle it. If you don't, you tell me why. I should trust your gut over my data. And what I think is happening is, is that for mediators, as they become more familiar with this, they say, well, look, they presented a fair case. They presented it to 400 people. They're admitting that the defense wins 28% of jurors. They're counting those jurors as $0 awards. And they're calculating an average value for the case. They've been right in other cases. Tell me why this shouldn't be the valuation. 
And when you have information on one side and an attorney on the other side saying, well, my gut tells me, or when I looked at some other settlements and verdicts, I think what you see is often a dynamic in the situation. And of course, we can all imagine that any attorney who would then have to tell their client, look, they studied it. It seems like it's a legitimate study from a reputable source. And it seems like they were careful to present our case. But I would suggest that we not pay the average value of the case and instead take it to trial is put in a somewhat uncomfortable situation to recommend declining settlement for an average value, not a best day value. And so I think we're seeing that more and more. And I I can tell you that we've seen it repeatedly make a difference in how the mediator talks to the other side. And I think, although I'm not in the room, make a difference in how the other side is responding to value. Well, John, this has been terrific. It's wonderful spending time with you and getting to I know we're doing this remotely, but getting to see you and, yeah. and, and spend yeah, some time great. talking to you. What insightful, you know, important information. There's two Johns in the room. So, John Campbell, thank you for joining us. This has been fantastic to, to hear the research. You know, I especially treasure it since it sometimes runs counterintuitive to what, to what we'd say around the water cooler. So thank you for that perspective. That's been wonderful. Thank you for your time and uh, explaining your work to us. John, thank you very thank you. much. You know, this, this is your in- interesting times and interesting uh, information. I don't know if you're planning on continuing to look into these issues, but if you are, let us know. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege, guys. Enjoyed talking with you. All right. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beeth. I'm John Simon. See you on the next one. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.